0: could be. I'm not sure.
1: Could be. I think that's what I would pass along. I think this uh, world we live in is, is quite magical. I think the great deals go to the optimists because they're prone to paying more for them. <laughs> the great experiences go to the optimists because in life you probably find what you're looking for. And the optimists tend to look for great things and expect great things.
0: If someone came to you and said that they had found a way to predict the future with more than 50% accuracy, would you believe them? Would you be intrigued to learn more? What would it take for you to be convinced that this could indeed be done? Big questions in a world of big data. But in reality, the answer should be, tell me more. Since just because no other investment firm has claimed victory when it comes to predictive power using machine intelligence to successfully trade the financial markets, we can't really exclude the possibility of it having been done by a team of scientists in Ontario, Canada. And that's what we're talking about in today's episode of Top Traders Unplugged. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome to another episode of Top Traders Unplugged, where my goal is to give you the clarity, confidence and courage you need to invest like or invest with one of the top traders in the world. It is the stories you never get to hear set out as the most honest and transparent account that I can make of what goes on inside the minds of some of the best investors in the world delivered to you via a one-on-one conversation. Today you're listening to episode 49. If this is your first episode, I suggest you go back and listen to all the previous conversations. Before we go any further, let's find out who's on today's show.
1: My name is Dave Sanderson. I'm the president, CEO, and one of the founders of KFL Capital Management. We're a machine learning firm that trades the futures markets, and you're listening to Top Traders Unplugged.
0: Thanks for doing that, Dave. And by the way, if you want to read the full transcript of today's episode, just visit the TopTradersUnplugged.com website, where you can find lots of great details about today's guest. Now, let's get started with part one of my conversation. I hope you will enjoy it. Dave, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure, Niels. Good. Now, Dave, we met only a few weeks ago at the Battle of the Quant in London, which, for those who are not familiar with it, is a series of one day events that has been hosted by Bart Kellerman for the past nine years, I, th- I believe. And I want to just say that I think it was a really valuable event with some excellent speakers and and panels. And uh, I highly recommend that people attend one of next year's events. Uh, as I know that Bart has something really cool planned for the tenth uh, anniversary. How how did you find the conference, by the way?
1: Uh, it was wonderful, Niels. Bart does such a great job, and he's connected. He's like the connective tissue to everybody quant. So whether you're a service provider, an allocator, or a manager, I would recommend it highly.
0: Absolutely, and of course, the bonus was that you and I ran into each other, yeah. and and there we are. A couple of weeks later, you're on my podcast, so the, so that's right. a great uh, that's a great outcome. Now, and thank you. <laughs> yeah. Now, Dave, you and your partners have come up with a very different way to trade the market compared to my previous guests. It's Intriguing, it's cutting edge, and I think the audience today will really have their eyes open as to the possibilities we have today uh, when applying the latest technology to financial data. Um, but I want to ask you a question before we get into that, which is uh, completely different and just something that I find uh, uh, interesting to hear the answers. And and that is, if you meet someone that you haven't met before in a in a social uh, context. Um, they don't know what you do. How do you explain in in simple layman terms what you do for a living, Dave?
1: Well, it's a great question, Niels. And I must tell you, leaving the battle of the quants, I I felt like I wasn't doing a good job getting our message through. So it's both difficult in a sophisticated audience and at the cocktail party, as you've described it. There, in the cocktail party, I say things like. We're really a data science firm. You've heard of big data. That's what we do. And we search huge mathematical space and we predict where prices are going in the next few hours of futures and commodities. And usually that gets a few questions coming back.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure of that. Now, anyways, we're going to stay with you for, for a while longer because, you know, to me... Numbers, when people look at a firm, a manager, doesn't really mean a great deal without the story, the context. So what I'd like to do is for you to go back pretty much as, as far as you want. Um, and tell me your story and how you got from, from where you were as a, as a young man or a young boy growing up to, uh, to where you are today.
1: Well, that's. Uh, I, I just want to pick up one more thing on the introductory question because sure. it was actually you that gave me the clarity on this. So you and I were chatting about um, trend followers and I have a great affinity for trend following. In fact, when I was a discretionary trader, that was my style. So you know, we used to say around my shop, if it's working, do more of it. And if it isn't, stop. And that's sort of the underlying thesis around trend following when something starts to move, get on it and it becomes an issue of entry and exit but really everyone is reacting to price moves and that makes a lot of sense. But that's the big distinction is we're predicting price moves as opposed to reacting to them. So I just wanted to put that out there as a, as a contextual point and then maybe it helps everybody understand as we go through the next number of minutes. Absolutely, absolutely.
0: So Dave, back to your, uh, to your young days, uh, what would you like as a kid and, and, and uh, where did you grow up?
1: You <laughs> I actually was born in Westchester County, New York and had the pleasure of flying back there recently with the KFL business card. So that was a great moment of reflection as the plane banked over <laughs> Westchester County and landed at the private little airport there. But uh, we came back to Canada when I was less than two years old, and I've grown up just outside of Toronto, Ontario, Canada, which is a wonderful place to raise children, but a challenging place to raise money. (laughs) So uh, anyway, we have a wonderful city. I now live in London, Ontario, and my career started in Toronto. I was trained as a lawyer and licensed as a lawyer in the early 90s and practiced commercial litigation for the better part of the 1990s. And uh, that was a wonderful journey. It was great to be trained in that way, but the parts of that business that weren't consistent with my personality were that it's all about conflict and Mm -hmm. I I prefer to build things and agree with people than I do to fight with them. And secondly, we're usually fighting over things that have already happened in the past, and I find myself much more future-focused than past-based. So I guess in retrospect, it was no surprise that that career was not going to be my final landing place. I was then brought into the investment management business, first wholesaling mutual funds to stockbrokers in the greater Toronto area, and subsequently managing... A couple of retail brokerage offices
0: in Toronto and london can i can I just stop you there for a little bit because that that's an interesting transition from from commercial litigation to to mutual funds what What actually happened back then that sort of led you to take that jump?
1: <laughs> um, that's a funny story. I was sitting at my desk on the 54th floor of commerce court in toronto on bay street and lawyering away and i get a cold call from what turns out to be a headhunter who's establishing a sales force in toronto of invesco Mm -hmm. and I responded to that call somewhat surprisingly to myself, (laughs) and so I find myself shortly thereafter in an interview and started the interview with a wonderful guy named Dave White, who's now a shareholder of KFL and has stayed in my life ever since, and Dave came into this boardroom that was not nearly as well-equipped as the steichman Elliott boardroom where I practiced, and he shook my hand and said, why? (laughs) I said, because I wasn't in interview mode. I said, why what? He said, why would you ever leave the practice of law? Hmm. And I thought for a moment and I looked at him and I said, you ever practice law? Hmm. Right. (laughs) And he laughed. Anyway, we became very good pals. Uh, You know what? There's something intuitively intriguing about the investment business. And I think it touches so many people that I was just intellectually curious and it was the right time and the right moment. And uh, I was probably... Uh, overconfident as well, Niels, thinking sure. I could make it whatever I chose to do. But life is funny and serendipity happens, and certainly that's part of my story. I feel very grateful to have ultimately met the partners I have met and to be working on such an important project. But I'm jumping ahead, so I'm happy to stay with any part of that story you wish.
0: Yeah, well, you know. So how long, for how long did you work uh, with mutual funds before you moved on?
1: I started in 1997. And between wholesaling mutual funds and being a retail stockbroker, mm-hmm. I bounced back and forth okay. until 2005. And then I began managing. In Canada, there are basically five bank owned brokerage firms that have the lion's share of the market. So one of those firms I began managing the retail office for. In Waterloo, Ontario. Mm -hmm. And that's where I ultimately met the people who've become part of this KFL story because as you'll learn later on, Waterloo is a very interesting geography for engineers, data scientists, and lots of tech innovation. So I was managing a retail brokerage office in Waterloo. Mm -hmm. I met the M&A tech lawyer who has become really the connector for all parts of this story. Okay. Uh, and I started that in 05. I then got hired to manage a different office in London, Ontario. Mm-hmm. And I moved here in 2006. So I've been in London, Ontario since late 05. Mm-hmm. Uh, began managing a quite a large retail brokerage office, one of the 10th largest in Canada. Mm-hmm. And um, had the great fortune to meet my partners Bob Siskin and John Drake who are about a generation older than me and have had wonderful experiences and it just clicked as soon as I met them. So, you kind of have to take these geographic stops before you're lucky enough to accumulate all the parts of a really, really interesting story.
0: Sure, that's true. Now, as part of that part of the journey, sort of the, the retail brokerage business, was there any time during that where you got exposed to the alternative investment uh, side? Because to me, I, mean, I guess I'm talking from ignorance here and you know retail brokerage is usually about stocks and bonds and, and, and not much else. but, but uh, how did you initially sort of or did you have any exposure to the alternative side, hedge funds, et cetera, et cetera, before you got introduced further to, uh, to, to your coming partners?
1: that that's a great distinction and a great question and not only is it only stocks and bonds but it tends to be one direction right. and that's long so though that business you know I have a great affinity for the retail brokerage business but it is very much about asset gathering and and service providing slash fee charging so it's a very very different business hmm. if I knew anything about alternatives it was because as I made the transition into retail brokerage one of the firms that I interviewed with and I was considering working with was MAN AHL. And sure. I flew to Chicago a couple of times to see the operations. And I was blown away by the operations of MAN AHL and the people there. That was a wonderful story. So that was my first real introduction to <laughs> alternatives. Uh, but as you've rightly characterized, the retail brokerage is virtually absent that kind of product. And in Canada, at least, they make it very difficult to sell. So I had an enormous amount to learn as we started the KFL project. Mm. But as you'll hear as we go along, we don't put a lot of emphasis on domain knowledge. We're a very scientific firm. So by domain knowledge, I mean the knowledge of the space of alternative assets and trade management, trade execution, these kinds of things. Um, We try to keep it a purely data science-driven firm.
0: Sure. So you, you meet, uh, I think you mentioned uh, a lawyer, or you're, you're, uh, and, and he introduces you further to, uh, to someone that he felt you had to meet. Is that right? Or did That's I right, that? yeah. yeah. That's right, yeah.
1: So the lawyer's name is Tom Hunter. He's sure. a wonderful guy. He's probably done more tech deals than anybody in Canada. Mm-hmm. And he always wanted me to meet a client of his named Steve Baxo. Mm -hmm. and Steve had quite a reputation in Kitchener-Waterloo for building a company called Pickstream and selling it to Cisco for 540 million dollars in 2000 and so clearly as a retail broker I wanted to meet Steve so we met and uh, I was trying to pitch Steve on what I thought was a quantitative hedge fund Mm -hmm. it was a fund that looked at four factors mostly around earnings, earnings momentum, earnings surprises And as I pitched Steve, I saw him respond quite positively to the idea that a hedge fund could be quantitatively based. But in the end, uh, he had a bigger idea for a quant hedge fund. And so he was working with Dr. Andrew Wong at the time, and they were using Dr. Wong's predictive technology in the genomic space. And as I was pitching Steve on the hedge fund, he was... Further convincing himself, I know he always had these ideas, but further convincing himself that now was the time to use a very sophisticated predictive modeling approach to prices rather than the things that he was seeing in the alternative space for his own money.
0: And and, and how I mean did that come about At the same time, he came to you and said, "You know, instead of you pitching me, I'm actually going to pitch you." Or how does it? uh, I mean, this takes place in 2005, six or thereabouts. Yeah. So
1: 2006, you can imagine, I'm a retail broker having a nice dinner with a quantitative hedge fund manager and pitching this prospective client. So the next day, I phoned Tom Hunter and I said, "Tom, how did we do?" Thinking. Mm. I might get a big account from Steve, and sure. he said, "Well, Steve really liked you, Dave, uh, but uh, in terms of hedge funds, he's actually going to start his own." Mm. And I said, "Tell me more." Right. And when he talked about using the genomic algorithm and making predictions on price data in the short term, I—I I guess I intuitively felt it could be done, and and now was the time somebody was going to do it. So. I said, keep me posted. And that was 2006. Mm -hmm. Steve went away with Dr. Wong and another player you will hear much of in this story, Dr. Gary Lee. And they worked for three years until I got another phone call that said, (laughs) come and see this. (laughs) I think we've got something.
0: Okay. And this is 2009, you said?
1: Yes, so the June of 2009, I traveled an hour down the highway from London to Kitchener-Waterloo and sat in a boardroom with Steve Baxo and Tom Hunter, and they showed me the first PowerPoint slides on, at the time, what was called Knowledge Funds Limited. We've since shortened it to KFL. And while I didn't, because of my background or my absence of background in statistics and predictive modeling and machine learning, I certainly couldn't verify what i was hearing throughout the presentation but i knew a couple of things for sure one was that tom was a very good friend of mine and i wasn't being misled mm-hmm. and there were no misrepresentations and secondly steve could do a lot of things with his time and his money and so this was obviously an important project that had some merit
0: mm-hmm. absolutely tell me a bit more what happens next in your story S- yeah
1: so i uh, i left that meeting slightly confused about temporal suffix trees and other parts of the statistical, statistical yeah. world that i had heard about but i knew a couple of things and that was if this technology worked it could be exploited for great economic benefit mm. And we could find out if it worked in fairly short order, at least we thought at the time. So even though they didn't ask me to raise money for the entity at that time, they were really reaching out as a person in the financial services industry. And they knew they would need a partner in the financial services industry. So they were sharing with me the story as it had evolved to at that point. So I drove back to London, Ontario, and I met with... Bob Siskind, who's a very good friend of mine, a very successful real estate business person in London, and I told him this story and about three sentences in he said, have you met my best friend John Drake who I knew owned a golf course in town, a very beautiful, beautiful golf course, very exclusive, he and his partner own it I knew that he had some, a lot of success in the junk bond era Mm -hmm. and was just an intellectually curious guy. So I hadn't had a deep relationship with John at that point, but Bob and I and John sat down, and I went through the story with them, and they said, let's go see it. So one week later, we traveled back down the highway, and we saw the same presentation from Steve and Tom, and it was about three hours long. I thought it was going to be 15 minutes because (laughs) at at about the 15-minute mark, John looked up and said, i got to stop you guys. It's one thing to make predictions on scientific data. It's wholly another to predict human behavior. Mm. And I don't think it can be done. Right. I I was feeling at the time that that may be the quickest due diligence ever done. Sure. But we kicked it around for a while, and I think the thing that kept us at the table was the idea that if you show human beings the same set of facts, they will react very predictably, mm. particularly when they're speculating in financial markets. They almost can't help themselves.
0: Mm.
1: So, three hours later, we get back in the truck to travel home, and Bob's sitting in the back seat. He says, John, what do you think? Mm. And John very profoundly said, I don't know. I don't think it's possible but I just can't miss it. Right. In other words, it's all about pod odds. You're mm-hmm. going to make a bet. In this case, the bet was $2 million True. to fund the technology development. And if it doesn't work, your $2 million is zero. Yeah. But if it does work, it's worth an enormous amount of money. Mm-hmm. And so that's how it all started in July of 2009.
0: Wow. wow. And it took a little while before you joined or did you join straight after in terms of building building the, uh, the infrastructure? Or?
1: Well, it's never a straight line, is it? <laughs> <laughs> the, the best plans right. never seem to go. So what happened was we spent a good portion of the summer into the fall right. getting a better understanding of the project before okay. the money went in. We even had them produce a set of test trades for us that we said needed to be better than random. Mm-hmm. And they met that. In October, a month's worth of trading had been quite a bit better than random. Mm-hmm. So we um, negotiated a deal and, and uh, we put the $2 million in in January of 2010. And for that, we got half the company. Okay. And so the technology development started. I stayed in the retail brokerage world at that point because yeah. there was a lot of building to do. Sure. Obviously yeah. very exciting, but we needed to get further down the road.
0: Yeah.
1: So... Um, what happens next is a really interesting part of the story dr gary lee becomes really the person on whom on whose shoulders we were relying or standing and dr lee was one of the students that had been supervised by dr andrew wong Mm -hmm. dr wong who's a shareholder of our company and one of the founders of our company was the founder of the Pattern Analysis and Machine Intelligence Lab at the University of Waterloo, right. Ontario. And he was trained at Carnegie Mellon. He has spent his lifetime in data science. Mm-hmm. Before data science ever became a degree, before big data was ever even a term, Dr. Wong spent his lifetime in the predictive modeling space. Okay. And Dr. Wong will tell you to this day that Gary Lee is the most brightest student he's ever supervised, and he's supervised, I think it's 160 PhD students okay. at the University of Waterloo. So he tapped Gary on the shoulder and said, come and work on the financial data set. Mm-hmm. Gary was very resistant at the time because his experience in predictive modeling was that the financial data set was untouchable. And certainly, Gary Lee and Dr. Wong are very, very cognizant of what's happening around the world at all the great institutions in the category of predictive modeling. And lots of progress was being made on scientific data sets. In fact, Gary had commercialized the algorithm in the oil sands. Mm -hmm. So, in the oil sands in Canada, one of the things you can do with predictive technology is maximize the recovery out of the bitumen in the tar sands. So, in your models are things like flow rate and temperature and all the you know, sensors that you place around the plant. Mm-hmm. So, Gary's uh, resistance came from the idea that he was in the prime of his career, and he certainly didn't want to waste a number of years trying to do something that there was no evidence could be done. Right. So, it took a little um, convincing thinking, to get yeah. Gary on the product on the on the project, mm. but he agreed to do it. He agreed to do it on a part-time basis originally until some progress could be made. Dr. Wong had some thesis students who had to give up, or PhD students that had to give up on the thesis because it was too challenging to make predictions on financial data. Right. Okay. But so Gary Lee started, and uh, he made some. Um, a little bit of progress, a little bit of setback and really two and a half years goes by and the better part of that two million dollars gets spent and there is no progress to show for it. Around Christmas of 2011, Gary comes forward and says, it's too hard, it mm-hmm. can't be done mm-hmm. and we encouraged him to keep going okay. and Gary actually wanted to keep going because he knew it wasn't a contribution to the uh, you know, academic um, file on predictive modeling if he just says it's too hard. Mm. If he comes back and proves the thesis that you can't do it, mm. now that's a contribution to science. So that's what he actually started out to do in late 11. He started out to prove that you can't do it. And the two things that he focused on, these two characteristics of financial data, that he believed were the reason it cannot be done and it hasn't been done are these. Number one, the correlations among variables in financial data changes over time. So if you think about that tar sands example, if flow rate is column A in your data set and temperature is column B, when you look at the relationship between flow rate and temperature, it's going to be the same on Friday afternoon as it is on Monday morning as it is three months down the road. Mm. But in the financial data set, if column A is the S&P 500 price and column B is the price of gold, you can imagine that there is sometimes a relationship, strong negative, on Friday afternoon and sometimes on Monday morning it's there's no apparent correlation and then three months down the road it can be Positively correlated. So mm-hmm. that's a, a very unique attribute of financial data sets. Sure. And the second attribute is that when you see a relationship in science, perhaps in the genome, you can call everyone over and point to it and nothing happens to it. When you see or when everybody sees a relationship in the trading world, the world of financial data, it gets arbed out. People Fine. trade that relationship away. So those two things, the fact that correlations change and the fact that the patterns can appear and then disappear, make that data set profoundly more difficult than other data sets when you're trying to use historical data to make predictions about the future. And so Gary started, and it was his proof, he thought, that he could prove that those two things made the data set untouchable. But to his dismay, I suppose, or to his surprise, in the spring of 2012, he actually gets a model that works on the S&P 500. He picked the S&P 500 because, in his view, that's the most efficient market in the world if there is such a thing. Mm -hmm. And he saw that his model could achieve 52.8% accuracy across about a year and a half of daily price data at that time. Mm -hmm. So he was interested in that, but he quite frankly thought that after he tested it, he would find some look ahead bias in the data or that he would find another reason why it wasn't true. Mm -hmm. He expanded the back test, the baseline test or out of sample test from a year and a half to five years And the 52.8% remained. And then he expanded it across not just the S&P 500, but 14 other assets. And lo and behold, it remained. (laughs) And so now he was being more convinced. But still, in his words, and it's great to hear him tell this story, unless he could prove it from mathematical first principles, he wasn't going to believe it. It's like the physicist that says, sure, it works in reality but can you prove it in theory? Right. (laughs) So that was Gary's view of the world. And he literally sat down with pen and paper and built the mathematical proof. And the mathematical proof indicated to him that something was wrong. But what was wrong was that it shouldn't produce 52.8% accuracy. It actually should produce 54%. So, he went back to the models and he optimized the three parameters that he felt were contributing to overcoming those two characteristics that we talked about. Mm -hmm. And when he did that, the back test was consistent with his mathematical proof. And ever since, we've been both telling the world and trying to validate to ourselves that we have an edge and the edge is 54%. Mm -hmm. So that was May of 2012 2012, when Gary comes forward and we amass a meeting of the partnership and Gary shares his findings. Right. And what I've learned about scientists is their tonality doesn't change. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So they can say, you're out of business and Eureka with the same tonality. (laughs) So (laughs) quite frankly, we missed the headline that meeting because the headline was, Eureka we've done it and uh, we weren't as excited as he expected and hoped us to be but shortly thereafter we called him back and said okay if you believe then let's continue we raised some more money sure we hooked the model up by way of API application programming interface no touch trading to interactive brokers Mm -hmm. over the course of 2012 And we refined the infrastructure such that the data feed would come in consistently and we could treat the live data symmetrically with the historical data. We can get into all that because that's been a a huge challenge. But anyway, we get to January of 2013 and Gary has tightened up the backtest and we say – Nobody in our, in our industry, Gary, is going to believe the back test. Right. And he was a little bit incredulous to that because so. he had used such scientific discipline to produce it. Mm. But uh, he took our word for the reaction of the industry. Mm-hmm. And he asked us what we wanted. And the answer was, well, let's get 1,000 trades. If we can get a 1,000 trade sample and you can show this 54% edge, then we will launch a fund. Mm-hmm. So my partners and I put $100,000 into that interactive broker's account and the machine in Kitchener, Waterloo, Ontario started shooting trades into that account. Over the course of 11 months, over 2013, by November, we had our 1,000 trades mm-hmm. and the accuracy number was 5402 which, I don't know about you, Niels, but That's pretty good. I, I have never seen a backtest become reality with such consistency. Sure. And as we move forward through this whole discussion, I will share with you that we're closing our one year of our partner fund, which is the publicly distributed fund. And we now have, in addition to those original 1,000 trades, we have 1,700 more trades,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the accuracy is 54 0.04 percent so it's it's amazing it's just yeah. uh fabulous sure. but i'm that's jumping great, ahead no no yeah. that's a great
0: story i yeah. mean that it really puts uh, things in uh, in perspective so thanks very much for 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 sharing that before we jump into the nitty-gritty of things i just want to take a step back and and, and ask you a, a question and you know and that's you know you're obviously busy building uh you know kfl and uh and uh, and that's a big task we all know that uh being entrepreneurial in in this day and age is not a, a 9 to 5 job but what you like to do when you're not spending your time on on the business <laughs>
1: um um i'm A lover of this business and it it bleeds into every part of my life as you've just hinted at there so I'm gonna tell you that one thing I love to do when I'm not working directly on the business is read think and write about the business right we've we've had a level of communication to our shareholders that's probably um very unique for a while during the 2013 period i talked about i would wait i would write weekly reports on the portfolio and not just numbers but narrative as well so this year we've gone to once a month and just finishing the 12-month report now but i have three beautiful children 18 15 and 11 and so if i'm not working i'm spending time with them or my wife debbie of 22 years and so we have a nice um, nice life here in london ontario and i play some hockey i play some sure. golf sure and i have wonderful business partners so that's my life niels that
0: sounds that sounds pretty good Now, before we jump into sort of the, the organization and how you've set that up, I wanted to ask you just a couple of broader questions. Now, you come from this, this unique world of machine learning as part of the investment uh, process. And in fact, you could say you're replacing the human brain when it comes to making forecasts. Um, talk to me why you think this is different Um, and why it's important to understand the difference uh, compared to what we normally refer to as systematic trading. What's the distinction?
1: Well, it's a very timely question. And I must say, as I left the battle of the quants, as happy as I was to beyond the new quant's panel and <laughs> to have met all the people there i was i was frustrated by my inability to communicate the difference right so you and i chatted post the battle of the quants and you made the point to me that makes the most difference which is mostly systematic traders are waiting for prices and reacting to those prices so you can imagine as you well know the trend followers of the world are waiting for trends to occur. And sometimes you get on those prices and it turns out not to be a trend, so you get off. Mm -hmm. But you are really reacting to prices and that's the key verb is reacting. What makes us different is that we are predicting where the prices are going and we're Mm -hmm. predicting where those prices are going over the next few hours. Our average hold period, we'll learn later in this, is 30 hours. So really that's the difference. And and these terms, machine learning and predictive modeling and big data, they all get kind of lumped in together and they can be very confusing. And I'm only starting to get clearer and clearer on it. But Mm -hmm. what I would say is this, the concept of big data is that data is now everywhere. There's a a deluge of it. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means a couple of things. It means that not only are things like Twitter feeds becoming zeros and ones, Mm -hmm. meaning the Twitter feed can be interpreted, stored, and accessed at reasonably low cost. So, there's this this expansion of the kinds of data that are available for interpretation. Mm. And then secondly, there are bigger and bigger computers able to crunch more and more numbers so to me those are the two parts of big data it doesn't really apply to us and I say that because we're using a data source that's been around forever all we use is price data And so that data has been flashing on people's screens for years, for decades. and It's been stored and cataloged and it's fairly accessible. So really there's nothing new in terms of our data set that makes us different. What I think makes us different is the number of people that have tried to do this, to just take in historical data and make a prediction about the future movement of an asset uh, is very many, but from our review of literature and anybody who's talking, uh, you know, we can't find anybody that's done it robustly or consistently.
0: Mm, interesting. The other thing I picked up on, uh, just preparing for uh, for our conversation, is that you see yourself being a little bit. Outside the CTA space, despite the fact that you actually trade futures like most CTAs and you use models and and you're in fact registered as a CTA, um, is the the label you wear is that important or not? Or and maybe you should explain how you see yourself more 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 importantly.
1: Right, that's a great great question. Um, when Gary and team developed the predictive technology, the question was, what are we going to use it on? And there are a number of reasons why the futures market makes a, a lot of sense to point this technology to. Mm-hmm. So obviously it's incredibly liquid. There is uh, an imma- immense amount of price data available. It's electronically traded. There is embedded costless leverage in it and for all of these reasons it made it the place to point the technology but really the underlying technology is predictive modeling it's machine learning and so we could point it to any data set and we could point it for instance to cash equities but when gary asked for the first list of assets to trade, it made so much sense to say, well, trade the S&P, the Dow, and the NASDAQ, and and then trade some other asset classes like metals or like agriculture or like interest rate products. And if we can prove the technology across all those asset classes, then we will validate the technology. So that's how we began. And then when we change from a prop account only into a fund we as you say uh, had to register as a CTA so sure. we're happy to be registered as a CTA there's absolutely nothing wrong with it it just gets challenging when we try to differentiate ourselves from all other CTAs and all of the systematic traders or anybody using a you know, computer-based model to trade markets so mm. yeah is that responsive to the question Neil? yeah
0: no, that's absolutely fine Dave um, now, we have the classical way of developing models where you hire a bunch of researchers, they look at the historical data, and they come up with rules that we can apply to, um, you know, to the markets and, and, uh, and, and make a profit over time. But, and, and I guess I have a feeling that you think it is so, but, but uh, let me ask it this way. Do you think machine learning is superior as a method to um, analyze and trade the markets? And and if so, why? Because clearly the traditional way have worked for decades for a number of firms.
1: Yeah, so I I would never use the word superior because I think that there are some amazing traders out there. And I think it's a wonderful uh, skill (laughs) set to have and it's, it's very unique. The great traders have created enormous economic value. So I think all we're saying, Niels, is that we have a way
0: mm-hmm.
1: to create some economic value. And mm-hmm. that's all we're saying. So there's no monopoly on how to do it. And there's no sense of superiority. Or if there is, it's it's by mistake. For so sure. that's, that's the first point I want to make. Um, I certainly tried my own hand at trading, and I'm keenly aware of how difficult it is. Mm -hmm. I'm keenly aware that human beings have biases, that we are not set up um, to trade the markets well. While trading discretionarily, uh, my partners and I came up with some core beliefs, and one of the first lines in the core beliefs was fundamental and technical analysis and other forms of hard work will just exacerbate human tendencies that are harmful to trading. Sure. <laughs> so that's my own personal view. But there are certainly wonderful traders out there who create great value. Sure. Um, I think that once we became familiar with what the machine can do, it's hard for us to trade any other way. Sure. Um, and so maybe a there, there's a, a way of describing it that I've just recently come on to that I think helps and, and maybe will help you understand why we're so enamored with the machine as opposed to the ways we used to trade. And that is the metaphor of the roulette wheel. If you think about a roulette wheel in a casino and the expected value of a bet by a patron, the house advantage is approximately 5.26%. It depends on where you play and and how many spaces are on the table, but let's just use that 5.2%. If you look at our system over 2,700 trades, the expected value of the bet, the house advantage is 13%. So if you had a roulette wheel where you could spin it Mm -hmm. and uh, you had a 13% house advantage, it would be really uh, difficult to go back to sort of any other way of trading because all that you need is a high frequency of spins and, and you're assured of where you're going to end up.
0: Sure, sure. Good way of explaining it. Now, let's jump to the first topic uh, that sort of is more specific about your business. And maybe I should uh, just say that uh, that I guess your model also has a name and, and I believe it's Crystal. Am I right in that?
1: Yes, <laughs> okay. we were actually, we were encouraged by our marketing firm who's done a great, job for us. Myler Capital has done a wonderful job for us. They said you should personify the machine. And and quite frankly, we we hadn't had a name for it. Um, But Gary was fond of talking about the entire infrastructure as being a crystal ball, and he didn't mean that so much in terms of foretelling the future as he did the clarity that we have throughout our system. So we have great clarity on things like slippage in real time, and we have a comparison of our historical trades and our simulated trades over the same period as we're live trading, and we watch that in real time as well. So he felt like the whole system was a crystal ball. So we just took the word crystal and... Change the C for a K to pay some homage to KFL. Sure, there we have the name.
0: Fantastic. Okay, great. Now, when it comes to your organization, there's obviously a couple of interesting things that uh, come to mind for me at least, and that is, I kind of part see you as an investment manager, and 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 to me at least, I kind of see you also as a kind of a tech firm, uh, if I can use that word. Um, how how have you structured your your business so far, um, in 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 that perspective, in order to, because I you know machine learning is is a very new area for me, uh, so I don't even know how labor intensive it is and, and so on and so forth or computer intensive it might be. So how do you structure a business when you venture into this type of, of trading?
1: That is a great question. So we have built it like it's a technology firm. Okay. And a lot of the people on our project have experience building companies, startups. Mm-hmm. And the normal way to do that is very different from the normal startup in the hedge fund world. The normal startup in the hedge fund world, as you know, is uh, a limited number of people with some expertise and they're proving out that expertise in a very low cost way. You need an account, you need some licensing, etc. Yeah. We set out, to solve an enormous technology question so Mm. the technology risk on day one was very very high and to some extent it wasn't very rational if you think about putting two million dollars in to solve a question that virtually open checkbooks had been trying to do for decades it was a bit it was a bit audacious to think that we could get there on a couple of million dollars well We were wrong. We have raised just over $5 million to fund this startup. Right. And we're raising more money because in our view, if you get this right, the ultimate value of the business is enormous. Right. So starting out on day one, we tried to solve the technology problem and we felt at that time it was a great business because if you solve the technology risk, the business execution risk, we thought, was very low. (laughs) <laughs> so sure. here we are five years later and $5 million later, and we're now telling everybody, hey, we've solved the technology risk because you can't do what we've done over 2,700 trades by luck. It's just, it's virtually impossible. Yeah. And so the technology risk we feel has been reduced to something near zero. And now we're in business execution risk. It's a lot harder to raise assets than we thought five right. years ago. Sure. <laughs> but that this too shall pass. Sure. So your question was about structure and how we view this business. We view it as a very, very exciting intellectual property startup and we've come a long way in a relatively short period of time with a relatively small investment given what we're trying to do. Mm. And then secondly, in terms of um, the manpower that you talked about, it does take a lot of manpower to run this business. So we have a science team of six people. These are both data scientists Mm. and what we call data engineers. So once you figure out the really big question of how to make predictions on time series financial data, you then have to build an infrastructure around it that is as subtle and elegant and sensitive as the models themselves. Mm. And by that I mean taking in real-time data, processing it, And working with it in a way that makes it 100% symmetrical with your historical data set, which is required for a model as sensitive as ours. You have to have a perfect symmetry between live data and historical data, or you'll get different trades in your live trading than you will in a simulated trading experience. So in order to do that, we've had to do a lot of work on our data feed And um, so we have three full-time people who watch the data feed, who work with historical data, who make sure we're connected to the places where we trade. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there's been a lot of what we call engineering challenges beyond the scientific challenge. So back to your question about manpower, there are six people on the science and technology team. Uh, So you can imagine what that costs per month. And then the data feed. I mean, we pay Thomson Reuters $20,000 a month for live and historical data. And then you have on top of that, in this country, you need to be a regulated entity under the purview of the Ontario Securities Commission. So we have to have those licenses and report to that body and and keep all that infrastructure going. So you add all that up and it's a high monthly cost. But once again, I think that if you... Our view is, if you get this right, if you can, in fact, mm. make predictions on financial data, then you've created an, an entity worth an enormous amount of money. Sure. The real questions then are, well, is it, is it sustainable and is it scalable? And we can talk about those two things as you, as you wish.
0: Sure. Sure, sure, sure. Um, the model itself—I mean, I can I fully take on board that the you know the data feed and and so on and so forth. But obviously, that kind of work doesn't really change in that sense. The data feed is the data feed. In terms of the model itself, is is does that just run by itself, or do you have someone overlooking it at all times, or? It
1: it is far more um, the former. It runs by itself. Right now. It runs by itself. So we do trade 24 hours a day, five and a half days a week. We trade twice or we make predictions twice in each of the 12 futures assets that we trade, just to give you some kind of idea for frequency of trading. So at various points around the clock, we are making trades, but there is no human being making those trades. Those predictions are produced by the models Mm -hmm. and then when a prediction is made the trade execution is by way of no touch trading directly to the fcm so the only human supervision is a check and balance type supervision we have all kinds of real-time checks and balances that make sure if a prediction is made it gets sent to the fcm if it gets filled at the FCM we get a confirmation if there's any discrepancy between all of that we get an, an alert but it's very much an alert system as it is opposed to a human overlay watching the trade get generated and putting any kind of discretion on whether that trade ought to be sent to the FCM or not
0: Sure, sure. I'm curious about one thing which is um, I mean you're at a very interesting stage I think in your business uh, a very exciting stage because it's kind of the of so the initial growth phase, you've got all the basics covered, and and you know uh, you need that little break to uh, to get your AUM to a certain level where you can then start to even further expand. So I want to just try and get into your 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 expertise and 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 your brain in the sense that from an entrepreneurial point of view, because many of the listeners today will also be people who are. Probably not, you know, fully established or people who even sort of just thinking about starting their own business. Um, how do you see expansion as a as a concept? Because it's it's really it's really a a, a risk every time you 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 expand. Uh, uh, you know, are you expanding ahead of time or are you expanding sort of reacting to increased uh, AUM coming in? I know you have already done, you know. You you're ahead of the game here because you're looking at it as a startup. You're raising money to to fund your business, which, as you said, is very different to how most I think managers start out. Um, but how do you, from that point of view, uh, view your expansion? And and let's assume that that assets come in at at a, at a decent level. Where do you wanna Where do you wanna focus that expansion on? What's critical for your success in terms of the areas of the business?
1: Mm. Uh, I thought you were going to finish that sentence or that question slightly differently so let me respond you to can that. You respond first. to it however you want. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah so so people who are listening and wondering about expanding and and uh, funding that expansion in the early days there is one clear thing I would suggest and that is get some patient shareholders. Right. So, right. so we have the most wonderful patient shareholders, all of whom have had a lot of success in their own lives and all of whom are participating in this venture, not because it's just another startup, but right. because we're trying to do something really important. So getting the right shareholders, I think, is absolutely critical. And, mm. and going back to them and saying, well, you know, we haven't gotten as far as we wanted to and we need to fund the operation some more that that is clearly what has killed many great businesses so yeah. i just want to sure. give a nod to our current shareholdership sure. and the latitude and trust they've shown us sure uh the second piece is our own future and where we go from here there is no shortage of ideas on our technology wish list mm. so um One of the things we are doing now and we don't need any more funding to do is expanding the number of times around the clock that we can trade. We've tested the accuracy of our model at various times around the clock, and it just doesn't change. So we're getting ready for higher AUM right now at $5 million there is no problem with any kind of slippage in these markets sure. you can imagine. Sure. Even though there's no problem with it, we track it every yeah. day and every trade. But we're getting ready for higher AUM and we're multiplying the number of times that we can trade around the day. Secondly, we're looking at expanding the list of assets that we trade. And there's only a couple of things that will stop us from trading an asset. Our view is if this model works, it will work on any asset. Except those assets that have an absence of data, of course. Mm-hmm. We go back to 1996, and we need hourly data back to 1996 on every target that we trade. Okay. So you'd be surprised at how many targets we can't put on our list. Sure. The second thing that might stop us is if there is too wide a spread in an asset, then it just erodes the the and from that asset. Yeah. So barring those two things, we can expand this list. I don't know how far I I read CTAs who say they trade 150 markets. I just, I can't get my head around that right now. But there is some number that's certainly greater than 12. Sure. The other thing we would love to get to work on is cash equities. And we really like it because clearly the data is there. Yeah. For the more traded cash equities, the spread is nice and tight. Mm -hmm. And we don't need a lot of leverage to make this P&L work very, very well. So we don't need the kind of leverage that's possible in the futures market. So given all of those things, that's going to be a wonderful place for us to spend some time. Yeah. The R&D keeps going on just because we've made a breakthrough, we feel, in predictive modeling doesn't stop the two primary data scientists working on improvements to the model. And so there's a lot of things we can do in that category. For example, when we make a prediction at the top of, let's say, an 8 8 a.m. prediction in the S&P 500, what we're really doing is looking at a, a decision forest So you're familiar with a decision tree. A decision forest is many trees in a forest. So there's 500 trees that ultimately make both a direction and magnitude prediction for that asset. There may be a lot of information in the 500 tree voting. Mm -hmm. In other words, right now, we're keeping fairly constant bet sizing, fairly constant position sizing, but there may be information that we have in the distribution of those predictions from the forest that is exploitable. So I think if you ask the science team, A, they're thrilled with how far we've come, B, they're thrilled with who are surrounding them right now, and C, they're excited to keep making progress.
0: Now, the next um, topic I wanted to spend just a little bit of time on is something that I think is quite important, actually, and, and certainly to investors because that's really the starting point and that's the track record. People look at it to get a feel for the manager and uh, you know to gather a, a level of interest, uh, so to speak. But here is my um, intellectual challenge when I when I think about what you do. Because, of course, we know track records evolve over time and models uh, change, not constant. Um, but someone who starts doing trend following is is obviously uh, not going to change completely if they still call them a trend follower 20 years later. So there is some kind of consistency in maybe the way they um, approach uh, the markets. But in your case... Um, we're talking about predictions being made up by or predictions being made by a machine, and I think it can be more challenging to get the comfort of consistency because uh, a decision at eight o'clock in the morning is based on one thing, but the same decision made at two o'clock the next day is going to be slightly different. So, how do you best explain to an investor how they should read? your track record and the likelihood of it being able to repeat it. I know we talk about consistency, 54% and all of these things, but in more visual terms, uh, maybe you can explain uh, how investors should, should look at your track record.
1: Well, that's a very well articulated Niels. So, we actually, you know, I like the way you framed that question because you sort of framed it as a challenge to us when we've been thinking of it as a unique advantage. Mm-hmm. So let me let me explain that to you. When I talk about having, in our view, shown predictive power over 2,700 trades, mm-hmm. by that I mean if you tried to get 54% heads in flipping a metaphorical coin over 2,700 coin flips, Right there are just a whole bunch of zeros before the first integer if if you don't have predictive power it is almost impossible to do that by luck so our our view is you know sort of please agree with us that we've shown predictive power to date Mm. and if somebody will come that far they tend not to be able to in the first instance but if somebody will come that far then the question becomes are you going to be able to, to sustain that power so we look at the consistency you've talked about, we look Mm at it as an advantage of ours. We retrain the model every single day. So the model is using more and more information as it's training data the more we trade. When we first launched our live trading account in January of 2013, we only had training data from 1996 to January of 2013. But next month, we're going to have training data from 1996 to January 1, 2015. So as your training data set expands, your algorithm, your predictive model, has a chance to learn more relationships and more correlations. And as it learns, it may even get better. I was just going to ask
0: that. So the 54% could essentially get higher.
1: It could, but we think there's a limit on where it can go. And by that, I mean this. So what we haven't talked about so far is that feel of what we're doing in the marketplace at 8 a.m. What are we really picking up? And one of the things Gary concluded early on was that there wasn't going to be any obvious patterns in financial data. The more obvious they get, the more they're going to be traded away by the hundreds and thousands of smart people trading these markets. So we're only going to find those patterns that are very, very subtle. They're subtle, but they're Mm non-random. So what we find is on any given trade, any given prediction, we have an enormously high confidence, 99.99% statistical confidence that the pattern we're seeing is going to repeat itself a slight majority of times. So we have a very high confidence of a very slight repetitive pattern. Mm -hmm. And so when we find patterns, it's because we're 54 or 55% we're very sure it's going to repeat itself 54 or 55% of the time. And that's a kind of under the radar uh, assessment that's going on at every trade. And that's part of the reason why we feel it's sustainable is that there's this evolution going on. There's this retraining going on. They call it evolutionary computing. And so as opposed to being a static model that we know has worked in our backtest period and has worked for two years, but committing not to changing it going forward at the risk of style drift or whatever, we're not saying that. We're saying we are going to evolve. We're gonna evolve with the changing correlations in the marketplace, with the changing participants in the marketplace. But the one thing that won't change is we always find subtle but non-random patterns.
0: Here's a question. I mean, you said that you you have data back to 1996 and every day Crystal gets another set of data and it, it learns a little bit uh, on a daily basis. But data since 1996, to some extent, you could say it's still quite a short period of time, really. I mean, financial markets have been around for a long time and uh, part of that period has also seen this unprecedented period, I, I would say, uh, with a lot of intervention from uh, central banks. The environment that Crystal operates in, um, what's, what's the optimal environment if you can talk about that, so to speak, or can you foresee an environment in which it becomes really difficult for Crystal because it may be an environment that it has not really been exposed to before. Do you know why I'm going yes, with this? Yes, definitely.
1: So there's a lot in there. Um, let me pick up on the uh, optimal environment and, right. and also some of the challenges. So sure. let's talk about the times when Crystal hasn't performed as well because that's helpful for everybody. Sure. Um, The optimal environment, if you look at when we talk about 54%, it's really only meaningful because it's made up of two things. It's made up of trade accuracy, meaning simply how many trades out of 100 are we winning any money on? And then secondly, the win multiplier. So how much money do we win when we win versus how much we lose when we lose? Those are the two parts that get amalgamated into the 54 because, of course, 54 by itself is meaningless. There's lots of great trend followers that win only 30% of the time, but they win so many multiples when they win, it makes a very profitable business. So when you look at those two elements for us to break it down, we only win about 50 percent of our trades it's Mm. just slightly over 50 percent but when we win we consistently win 1.13 times what we lose sure so why do i raise that in the context of an optimal environment because we feel like volatility is good for the p l and i i need to to uh, disclaim immediately that there isn't enough evidence yet in our trading to statistically conclude this. I'm, I'm sure. suggesting that volatility is a good thing, but, but I want to claim first that there isn't a statistical significance to this. Why there's a fundamental reason that would be the case is this. If you think about a low volatility time, when you're winning half your trades and you win a dollar 13 when you win and you lose a dollar when you lose mm. you have that same relationship of 1.13 but then if it becomes a very volatile time and when you win you win say 13 dollars versus when you lose you lose 10 dollars you still have the same win multiplier 1.13 but your net win on an average trade is now mm. th- three dollars instead sure. of 30 cents so there is some evidence or there's some intuitive feeling that volatility will be a good thing sure. the second piece is that as you look back over our out of sample test it did include 2008 and 2009 and those were fantastic years mm-hmm. for the model mm-hmm. now let's look at the challenging years the biggest challenging moment we had in our out of sample test was actually 2010 hmm not something I expected going into this. In fact, I was encouraging the science team not to back test through 08 and 09 because it was so uh, abnormal. Well, uh, they don't look at the world that way, and if if it works, it works. And so we tested through that period. But what we found in 2000 and uh, late 2009, 2010, was that was the least. Uh, the least amount of predictive power in the model, okay. and so we've speculated as to why that's the case, mm. and I think it goes something like this: There was a fundamental shift in the markets if you think about March two thousand and nine when the equity markets bottom mm. and the change of players in the financial markets at that time we had the the United States government was participating in a way that it, it had never done so far. And so, you know, short selling was banned. And all these fundamental things changed. So then when you think of the predictor, looking back over that time frame, it's looking for relationships that have now disappeared. Right. And so it took a while. The decline was three months and the rebound was seven months. So in terms of being underwater, there was a 10-month period. Sure while Crystal got its sort of correlation feet underneath it again. But yeah. but I, I actually quite like it because it's as if there was a 100-year flood type test and uh, it only took that long for it to find those relationships again and, and begin to make a fair bit of money.
0: Sure. I had, so I don't think I answered every part. You had a no, lot of stuff fine. in there. That's yeah. fine. There's no uh, no right or wrong here. I have another challenge for you, Dave. You know, when you go in and you talk to investors nowadays, they always want to put you in a bucket. So you're a trend follower or you are a counter trend manager or you are whatever they call themselves nowadays. Where do you fit in in all of this?
1: Yeah, that's you know, I, I'm now going to try to work with the with the questioner and say How about this? You help us put us in a category because clearly trend following doesn't fit. uh, Momentum doesn't fit. Counter trend doesn't fit. In order for the predictive model to have those attributes, we think you have to give it knowledge of the domain. So we haven't talked about this yet. We we use non-parametric modeling. It simply means we have no prior knowledge about the data set. The only information the predictor has is price data, two times a day price data for the target assets and all the independent variables we give it. That's all it knows. Mm. It doesn't know, for example, that there is a normal distribution. Mm. It doesn't know, for example, that a price point is some set of standard deviations away from the mean. It doesn't know that there's a mean to which it should revert. So, Mm. So if it doesn't know all those things, then lo and behold, it's probably not going to exhibit the characteristics of those others. The other thing I would say to the person wanting to categorize us in a bucket is to say our correlation clearly to to the S&P 500 is quite low, Mm. 0.09, and that shouldn't surprise anybody. But our correlation to, for example, the new edge CTA index is even less. This is 0.06. Now, those correlation numbers are fraught with challenges, I know. Sure. But just directionally, uh, it certainly doesn't look like we have a high correlation to any other bucket.
0: So, Maybe the solution here, Dave, is you need to invent your own. You know how it is. If you want to be first in a category and you know you can't be it, you invent your own category and then you are first. Yeah, well, I'm, I, I'm fighting, uh, we have enough experience around
1: our firm to fight hubris at every turn. So if you, ever, if you ever feel like I'm exhibiting hubris, please put me in my place. And So I think if you make a good point, it's very difficult to categorize us. I would say, though, that um, maybe what I should respond with in the future is to say, why don't we together go find entities, groups that are claiming predictive power over time series financial data and we'll happily be in that bucket and we can distinguish from among those folks but i think it's going to be a limited number of people that uh, are put in that bucket
0: but speaking of that and that's i think is quite valid and quite interesting if you were to mention a couple of names uh, you know people like qim uh, you know the medallion fund jim simon's uh, fund are, are those the kind of people you would look at
1: Yes, for sure. So QIM is is a great example because... <laughs> like still...
0: Ready to learn more about the world's top traders? Go to toptradersunplugged.com and sign up to receive the full transcripts of the first 10 episodes of the show and visit the show notes where you can find useful links to other amazing resources. Thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged.